is KCBX, Central Coast Public Radio. It's time for Issues and Ideas, a show that features a wide variety of local voices sharing their thoughts and perspectives. Today we'll hear from the actor who played Tommy on the movie It's a Wonderful Life. One of his youngest kids would always do that. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Okay, now we say excuse you for what? I burped and the family laughed. So he put that in the movie. Also, the nonprofit Santa Barbara Strings trains aspiring young musicians. If there's a need and there's a desire for, from that child and that family that they have this musical training, Santa Barbara Strings will figure out a way to make it happen. These stories and more coming up on Issues and Ideas. Good afternoon. It's Monday, December 19th, 2022. I'm Carol Tangeman. Let's start with a look back at the iconic holiday movie, It's a Wonderful Life. What is it you want, Barry? What do you want? You, you want the moon? Just say the word and I'll throw a lasso around it and pull it down. Back in 1946, five-year-old Jimmy Hawkins played the role of Tommy in It's a Wonderful Life. Decades later, the film was voted the most inspirational movie of all time by the American Film Institute. But when it hit the silver screen for the Christmas season in 1946, it was a box office flop and lost $500,000, even though it was nominated for five Academy Awards, including Best Picture. By pure happenstance, I was introduced to Jimmy Hawkins at a St. Vincent de Paul summer camp for disadvantaged kids in the hills above Santa Barbara. Come along and join Jimmy Hawkins as he recalls his role as Tommy. Insights about Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart, Donna Reed, and other cast members. He also talks about his subsequent roles as a teen heartthrob on the Donna Reed show for eight seasons. Hawkins starred in the first Elvis movie, Girl Happy, and his subsequent work as a producer. During the course of his career, Hawkins starred in or produced more than 500 movies and TV shows. Hawkins also shares the secret of the belated success and eventual cult-like love of It's a Wonderful Life that didn't take off until the 1970s when someone forgot to renew the copyright. That's right. That's right. Jimmy Hawkins, what a pleasure to meet you. I was tipped off that you were Tommy in a movie. Uh, yes, I had the pleasure of being in a, a movie called It's a Wonderful Life, which was voted the most inspirational movie of all time by the AFI, American Film Institute. And every Christmas they show it, and it seems to get bigger and bigger. Every Christmas, more people are aware of it. And people ask me all the time, why do you think the movie is so popular? Why do people gravitate to it? And I tell them I think it's the message of the movie, and they get to see that each man's life touches so many others. If they weren't around, it would leave an awful hole. And it gives them some hope that they're here for a reason and that they can touch lives if they choose for the better. And if they were taken out of the equation, things wouldn't be the same. And that's what people like about it. It's a wonderful life. And of course, the great cast that Frank Capra put together with Jimmy Stewart and Donna Reed, just all the it people. It really was Bedford a perfect Falls. cast, wasn't it? It was. It was impeccable. Can't imagine a change Anybody out. else? Yeah in those parts. Yeah, and I think we all agree that Jimmy was the keystone. Oh yeah, definitely. And the thing is that it was the first movie he did after being in World War II for four years. And same with Frank Capra. Mm -hmm. And they were very nervous. They wondered if they still had it. 
Jimmy Stewart even told Lionel Barrymore, who played Old Man Potter, he told him that he thinks he's going to quit acting, that after being in World War II and seeing real life, that he just doesn't feel that this means anything. And Lionel Barrymore says, you're wrong. He says, you have a great gift. You can speak to people in the dark for two hours, and they'll listen to what you have to say. No, no, no. Acting's a great profession. You have a great gift for it. You stay right where you are. And really made Jimmy Stewart feel better about himself while he continued to play this, what's turned out to be iconic role. You know, he was the quintessential common man, everyday guy. Mr. Smith goes to Washington, yeah. another. Yeah. That's right. He just was that guy. Mm -hmm. And Capra realized it, and it was his only choice for the part. When the movie came out, was it an immediate hit? No, it uh, lost $500,000. It was up for five Academy Awards. The Academy recognized that there were great performances, great director, writer, the look of the movie. But it just didn't find an audience. After World War II, people were looking for other types of film. Isn't that interesting? Yes. I, I talked to Sheldon Leonard, who played Nick the bartender in the film, and he said the film never changed. The people did. And now the people realize that they need that message more than ever now. It just keeps growing. Mm -hmm. I, I don't go any place that when they find out that I was associated and played the youngest Bailey kid, they just can't believe <laughs> somebody's alive <laughs> from the movie. <laughs> but it found its audience. What do you remember of the filming? Do you remember being on the set? Oh, yeah, I remember everything. It's, really? It's kind of funny. I've had just a terrific career as an actor in the motion picture business and to be associated with that I've done over 500 movies and TV shows and it's a wonderful life just rose to the top I don't care how long I was on different series or co-star with Elvis and did all the major TV shows that is the one everybody wants to know about gravitates to sure they like to hear oh how was Elvis how was Ricky Nelson how was Donna Reed because I was reunited with Donna Reed on the Donna Reed show I did the very first episode and eight years later I was still doing the show so I got to be very close with her I sat on the board of her foundation for 25 years and um, it, she is much of a sweetheart as she appeared to be better Really? You know, it was her show. She really was the, like the producer. She had all control. Never exercised any displeasure in front of anybody. But it was a great running set. It was fun. A lot of humor. Nobody was, you know, <laughs> thinking they were making uh, Gone with the Wind or anything. Right, right. But she was a real, very nice lady. A memorable person and in interaction on your time in Hollywood. Oh, yeah, she was. You know, won the Academy Award from Here to Eternity. Her Donna Reed series lasted eight seasons, quite a run, but deservingly. Just worked very hard and for the show and showing women in different roles and then uh, got into her politics about mothers against the war. She thought they should have a, you know, different things the way they could run things. The Secretary of War, why can't they have a Secretary of Peace, she wondered. So, nice lady. Let's go back in time to Tommy. It's a wonderful life. Yeah. Tell us about some of the things that you remember. I remember getting up real early in the morning. I'm four and a half years of age. You know, that half a year was a big deal at four. You know. yeah, right. Four and three quarters. Yeah. Yes, right. So, I took 
buses and streetcars through L.A. out to Culver City, where they shot the film. And you were with your mom? Yeah, uh-huh. It's right after World War II. I remember coming on the stage, huge stage, and the Bailey home was there. And there was real snow that they had outside oh, wow. of the home on the set. And I thought that was interesting. Walk on the set, there's that Christmas tree. And then I'd be with my siblings. We'd go to makeup, but, you know, kids didn't really need that much makeup back then. They liked more natural look. And then we'd have a school teacher, welfare worker on the set, so that three hours would be dedicated to schooling. And then when they needed us on the set, we'd rehearse. Now, I have a, a line that's become very popular where I pull on Jimmy Stewart's coat tails and I keep saying, excuse me. Excuse me, excuse me. And then he's really ticked off. He finds out that his, he's lost $8,000. They're going to, it's bankruptcy, it's shame, everything. He's got all this going on in his mind. And he says, excuse you for what? And I said, I burped. Well, this is a line that was not in the script. Frank Capra, uh, when we were coming out of the living room, going to the kitchen, he uh, rehearsed everybody. And we started walking. And then he said, okay, everybody stop. So then he'd squat down, talk to me one-on-one. -on -one. He said, see where we are right now? See the spot we're in? Everybody's standing there. When you get here, I want you to pull on your daddy. That man is you're pretending he's your daddy. Pull on his coattails and say, excuse me, when you get right here on this spot. Do you understand that now? Say yes, sir. He said, okay, everybody, let's go. So they started their dialogue. He said, I better stop. He said, you see where we are? Scrunched down again. And, squat down and talk to me face to face. You see where we are here now? We were over there. He said, excuse me. Now we're here. When you get to this spot, keep pulling on his coattail. And say, excuse me again. Got that? Oh, yeah. Did they have literal marks? Not in long shots, just mm -hmm. close-ups. So you, as an actor, get used to that. Because then there's a key light for you. So we shot the scene. Rehearsed it a couple more times, all in one motion. And he said, okay, we're ready to shoot it. And shot it and did it. And I said to him years later, I said, you know when we shot that? He, I said, what was the most difficult scene in the movie? He said, that scene with all you kids, with your older brother asking, how do you spell this? The girl, your sister pounding on, on the, the piano. piano. Yeah. You, excuse me, excuse me. And he said, all that could be funny. And this is a serious scene with humor in it, but you couldn't have the people laughing at you. They had to laugh with you. And he said that was the most difficult to stage. I said, oh, that's interesting. I said, but I missed one of the excuse me's that you asked me to do. Why did you print it? He said, because it seemed natural, and I liked the way it was. I said, oh, okay. Talk to us a little bit about Frank Capra. What a bigger-than-life character in Hollywood history. Oh, yeah. He just knew what he was doing. He could tap dance, which means, I'll tell you for instance, he was looking for locations for the movie. And they took him over to Beverly Hills High School in their gymnasium to shoot the scene where they're Charleston dancing and everything. And he meets Donna Reed as an older girl now, 18. He's looking over the place and the AD came up to him. He said, uh, Frank, do you know under this basketball court is a swimming pool? He said, what? 
Sam, there's a swimming pool under. He said, well, open it up. Let's see. So they told him, open it up. He saw that, and that's where he wrote the whole scene about them dancing and falling into the pool. You know, it wasn't written. It just happened, and he took advantage of things like that. Not, gee, it's too bad. We should, could have a scene. Well, no. There's going to be a scene. That's going to cap this thing off where they fall in the pool together. And, and he just was very sharp. The, the excuse me line, that was a family joke in his own personal family. One of his youngest kids would always do that. Oh, excuse me, excuse me. Well, okay, now we say excuse you for what? I burped and the family laughed. So he put that in the movie. The night before, he said, I think I'll have the Tommy Bailey character say that. It just happened. Just he could see what was happening and then adjust to it. And I think that you hit it on the head as a metaphor for you in that in the movie there is that relaxed and believable element of all the actors and actresses. Right. And the people say, well, did you know that this movie was going to do what it did? No. It was another day's work for all those actors you saw on it. They appreciated it. They loved it. They loved working with Capra and Jimmy Stewart, blending their Bert the Copper or the, the taxi driver. Oh, he was a great character. Oh, yeah. Frank Phelan, nice people. You get to know them and working with them in later years. The uncle that had oh, the uncle Bert. Oh, Uncle Billy. Yeah, uncle tell, Billy. he was yeah. so lovable. Oh, yeah. Well, he was, I mean... Just a great actor from Gone with the Wind. I mean, whenever they needed a good actor. And Capper knew them all. And he knew where they would be best. Henry Travers as Clarence the Angels. You can't think of anybody else. You know, you've got, he saw his casting list. But, you know, he just had that touch. I can't imagine how disappointing that film was his first film with his own company, with his partners. And his partner had a, another film to direct. And they both started the films off on the same day and both sent each other's telegram. One was doing It's a Wonderful Life and the other was doing The Best Years of Our Life. And they were both up for the best picture. Wow. You know, it was just, and they here partners on mm -hmm. other projects. Interesting, and it's just incredible, like you said earlier, that it was a flop financially. It was. it was. And it just fell in. Somebody forgot to pick up the copyright in the 70s. And then it became public domain. And that means TV stations all over the United States could play it for free. And they did. They could charge for And they do. And they do. Yeah. So it was a fluke that mm -hmm. it fell in and then found its audience. And people started having its wonderful life parties. They had trivia games. It just grew and grew and grew. And it's such a thing to watch. It's a wonderful life. has taken me places. I rang the bell at the stock exchange in New York. Uh, when did you do that? Uh, it was about maybe nine, eight, nine years ago. Oh, cool. And, yeah, you see all these high rollers, and they couldn't believe that the Bailey kids were on that podium with the president of the New York Stock Exchange ringing that bell. It was great to push that button. It was great. It's just, that's what's fun about it. Places that you never thought you'd ever go. Back to Elvis. Uh, well, like all actors, we go on interviews. And I, I was known for being the boyfriend of you know, every girl on television. Uh, three years on Petticoat Junction. Uh, you know, I did the Leave it to Beaver, Ozzie and Harriet, of course. Eight years on Donna Reed. And uh, my three sons, 
So I was known for playing the boyfriend. So they, they got a call and they wanted to see me out at MGM for an Elvis movie. So I was sitting there talking to the director and the producer, Joe Pasternak, and in the casting place that I had been since I was two years old. MGM did films with Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. And so you literally grew up in Hollywood. Then. Oh, yeah, definitely. Were your parents involved? No, my mom's father was one of the original Keystone Cops. Oh, wow. And so she just always wanted her kids in the picture business. My brother was in it before I was, and then I'd follow up. And so I was sitting there, you know, talking about, you know, how you do on interviews with the director. And all of a sudden, the producer turned to me, Joe Pasternak, and he said, were you on Petticoat Junction last week? I said, well, yes, I, I was. He turned to the room, he said, he can play anything. Just explain to him what the parts are. He'll tell you who he's right for. And he said, okay, we'll be calling you to set up a meeting with the director, and, you know, thank you for coming in. Came in a week later, the director explained, Elvis had three sidekicks in a band, and he explained, to me which the three were. I told him, well, I think I'd be best for this part. Okay. So they had signed me first for the picture, and I thought... Very which important. picture was this? Uh, this? The first Elvis movie is Girl Happy. Then I did Spin Out with him afterwards. But the main thing, it got me into older roles. You're no longer the teenage boyfriend. Right. Yeah. And I said, now, if I think I can be Elvis's friend, that means that they're thinking of me as being a little older. Was and, Elvis approachable? Were oh, you ever able to hang out with him and talk yeah, to him? Yeah, Shelley Fabre was the leading lady in the film. And, of course, I was her boyfriend for eight years on Donna Riccio. She was my girlfriend when I was under contract to Gene Autry to do the Annie Oakley series. And so I'd known Shelley since we were kids. Now, she's playing his leading lady, and I'm his sidekick. And so we'd kind of hang out, and then we both would talk about, can you believe this? I mean, here we are with Elvis, wow. And all of a sudden, we were sitting in my dressing room and the door knocked on the door, these portable dressing rooms they have on the stage. They don't want the actors leaving, you know, they know, give them a dressing room. So we both look up and it's Elvis. No entourage, no anything. Just walks in. Just, yeah, he said, can I join you? Yeah, I look at Shelly, wow, so. You know, he sat there uh, until we were needed for the next shot and just talked and talked and talked. And he was always doing that after weekends. He would take karate lessons on the weekends. Then he'd show us his newest movements. What do you think of this? And very approachable, very nice, very humble. Wasn't, uh, you know, I'm Elvis, you're nobody. He was just a very, very nice person. It's just sad the way it ended. Yeah. Because he was a nice person. Who were some of the other actors and actresses that touched you? Well, for me, I did one of the very first family shows on television in the, in the late 40s. I did that for three and a half years with an actor by the name of Charlie Ruggles. Now, he's a big star in the 30s and 40s, big movie star. And he came to television, and they had a situation comedy family. I played one of twins, had an older brother and sister, of course a mom, and we did that live for ABC. That was on the ABC network and it was live. So I've just had a, a wonderful life myself, a great career, and here I get to 
talk with you and share stories and well, I like that. Well, I love it too because like a lot of people that you know, you've been a part of my life for my whole life, but I never got to meet Tommy. So oh, well, that's, that's pretty nice cool. to say. Yeah. Now I get to meet you. So works both ways. It does. Jimmy Hawkins, thank you so much. What a wonderful day. Oh, it's my pleasure. Jimmy Hawkins, thanks again. Okay, best to you, Tom. You've been listening to Jimmy Hawkins, who played the five-year-old Tommy in It's a Wonderful Life, the 1946 Capra classic. I'm your host, Tom Wilmer, reporting. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Carol Tangeman. Up next, the nonprofit Santa Barbara Strings trains aspiring young musicians. They study classical music and perform as a youth orchestra. The organization recently added scholarships for early strings training to make more opportunities available for students throughout Santa Barbara County. Beth Thornton has the story. Members of the Santa Barbara Strings Youth Orchestra are tuning their instruments in preparation for the winter performance. The annual holiday concert in December is an opportunity to showcase their progress and achievements for their parents and the community. Conductor and Artistic Director Mary Beth Woodruff founded the nonprofit in 2009 to provide high-level classical music training to students in Santa Barbara County. As the name suggests, the focus is on string instruments. So in the string family, we have the violins that are the smallest, and then the viola, and then the cello, and the double bass, and then the piano. Woodruff is an acclaimed violinist. She grew up in Santa Barbara and says she left town as a teenager in search of more advanced training. She has since made her way back to the area to raise her family. And today, thanks to her efforts, about 70 students participate in Santa Barbara Strings, ranging in age from 4 to 19. One of the things that's wonderful about our organization are the older kids and how they help the younger ones. Students progress through a three-tiered program. They take individual lessons and perform as a group a few times a year. Woodruff says some students also participate in chamber music ensembles that perform at schools and community venues. One of our Santa Barbara Strings cellists played with me at a a senior home in Santa Maria. So that's another uh, place in which I, I love to reach out. Woodruff says students are immersed in the study of classical music and musical training, but the program is about more than mastering an instrument. Playing music, she says, is good training for most everything. That trains the, the human as the athlete and as the actor and as the poet and as the scientist who's solving problems. Woodruff says performing live on stage as part of an orchestra also requires teamwork and careful listening. Because not only do they have to listen when they're making music, but they need to listen to the silence in between and they need to listen to each other. The costs for ongoing music lessons and renting or owning a string instrument can be prohibitive for many families. So the organization aims to keep tuition fees manageable, and they also offer scholarships.
Their newest program, Early Strings Training, is in its first year. The program puts instruments in the hands of young people who may otherwise not have the opportunity to play. Linda Stafford Burroughs is the board president. She says providing instruments and scholarships for early strings training will open up opportunities for more students to participate. If there's a need and there's a desire for from that child and that family that they have this musical training, Santa Barbara Strings will figure out a way to make it happen. Funded through grants and donations, participants in early strings training start with introductory lessons and, over time, move into the strings orchestra. Burroughs says educators work closely with all students for weekly lessons and performance preparation. The instructors are classical musicians that, when not working with Santa Barbara Strings, perform in orchestras and symphonies around the country. She says their years of experience and training make them strong mentors for the young musicians. That strings are among the most complicated instruments to learn properly and to be able to go with confidence into a piece by Bach or Mozart as they be, you know, progress in their mastery, they need to have all those fundamentals. Violinist Max Z is 11 years old. He started playing violin a year and a half ago and says he plans to stick with the strings program throughout high school. It's different than just playing a solo piece because you get to interact and play with the rest of the people and the orchestra. 14-year-old cellist Mia Richmond joined the Santa Barbara Strings about five years ago. She's now in the advanced high school group and says her friends, especially in the cello section, make putting the time in for rehearsals much more fun. I love performing. I like making people smile. And when people enjoy the music, it makes me happy. Max and Mia took the stage for the winter concert and together with their fellow musicians performed this holiday piece that will probably make you smile. For KCBX, I'm Beth Thornton. You're listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. We're going to take a short break. When we return, you'll learn about a Santa Barbara-based nonprofit distributing humanitarian aid in Ukraine amid the ongoing Russian invasion.
Welcome back to Issues and Ideas on KCBX. I'm Carol Tangeman. Next, we have a story about giving. A Santa Barbara-based nonprofit is distributing humanitarian aid in Ukraine. KCBX's Benjamin Perper spoke with the nonprofit's representative in Kyiv, Ukraine. Before Rachel Harvey started working for the nonprofit Shelterbox, she spent her career as an international correspondent. She reported for the BBC all over the world, mainly in countries across Africa and Asia. Now, Harvey is in the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. There are rolling power cuts all the time. Some are scheduled, some are not. The other thing is the air raid sirens going off because missile attacks are still going on from time to time. And you can't predict exactly when those are going to be. We just wait for the air sirens and then get down into bomb shelters. This chaotic situation in Kyiv has been going on since February, when the Russian-Ukrainian conflict escalated into a full-scale Russian invasion. The war has created a humanitarian crisis in the country, with millions of Ukrainians now displaced and many more becoming casualties of war, hunger, or the elements. That last threat is one of Harvey's main focuses, trying to keep people without shelter warm enough to get through the harsh Eastern European winter. You could live in a, in a house with a hole in the roof and maybe a few windows blown out over the summer, but we're now going into winter and it's only going to get a whole lot colder. So now we need to help people patch up those houses and keep warm. Shelterbox, headquartered on the Central Coast, specializes in emergency shelter equipment like tools and tents in a small mobile package, literally a box with shelter inside. Harvey says their main task is importing and preparing these boxes in countries experiencing conflict or natural disasters, then working with local partners to find out where the aid should go. We never want to be a burden on the host country by hanging around longer than we're needed. We come in with the technical expertise, the supervisory capacity, then we'll head out and let them get on with it and just manage things remotely. So that's the job at the moment, is to make sure everything's in place, the final aid is here, the plan is in place, we know who we're delivering that aid to, and then we'll leave and let them get on with the project. As a nonprofit, Shelterbox has limited resources to distribute their aid. Harvey says that means part of her job is to figure out how their work can be as useful as possible, despite their constraints. So we've decided that we will look at people with houses that are damaged, partially damaged, but where they're still occupied. So completely destroyed houses, very little you can do about that apart from completely rebuild. We're not at that stage yet. But we have seen a lot of people who have stayed within their houses throughout the conflict, even though they've sustained damage. Harvey says she travels throughout the area and meets people in these desperate situations all the time. I was in a village uh, yesterday that's had no power for months and no running water for months. So they really need help urgently now ahead of the winter. So we're providing a mixture of lumber and heavy duty tarpaulins to patch up roofs, some clear plastic sheeting and ceiling foam for windows, a set of tools, nails, that kind of thing. So that's to make the outside of the house sealed off against the winter weather. Shelterbox is a Santa Barbara-based nonprofit which sends aid to areas experiencing disaster and conflict all over the world. Some areas in need are relatively predictable in how much aid they'll need in any given year, like Syria, whose civil war has been ongoing since 2011. But most others, like Ukraine this year, come by surprise, meaning organizations like Shelterbox have to jump into action. The situation on the ground right now is pretty dire. That's Carrie Murray, president of Shelterbox USA. She says the organization had not budgeted for a conflict as massive 
as Ukraine turned out to be this year. It's turned out to be one of our largest responses of the year. The situation in Ukraine is on top of all the other disaster and conflict areas in the world that Shelterbox is responding to. That includes places like Syria, Ethiopia, Yemen, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. There are so many other really monumental disaster and crisis situations that we're currently responding to that don't garner the attention or the private charitable support, like what you're seeing in Pakistan, one of the worst monsoon flooding situations in history, and massive shelter needs and humanitarian needs there. Tens of millions of people need humanitarian assistance. Murray says all this need has strained the organization's ability to respond fully to every area it's working in. And with that in mind, she's calling for more donations and volunteers as the nonprofit heads into another year of intense demand for humanitarian aid. This is really what helps provide that catalyst and that boost to be able to do so much work globally at any given time. Rachel Harvey's work in Ukraine is part of that. People are incredibly grateful. I was talking to... Partway through our Zoom interview, Harvey is telling a story about two women who live in an apartment that's been torn apart and exposed to the elements over the course of nearby fighting. And then something happens in the background of Harvey's video. Whoops, that'll be the power cut. The lights in her apartment have turned off. Somehow the internet has stayed intact, even with the power out. You could probably see I'm now sitting in darkness, so we'll see how long the internet lasts. But this is life. This is life in Ukraine. You can't always predict it. Harvey, as a former BBC correspondent, brought the conversation immediately and effortlessly back to the dire situation of people on the ground in this conflict. And you could tell right then that she's done this hundreds of times. Those women had no power at all. You know, I'm lucky to see the lights go off and on again like that. They had no power, no running water, but they were determined to stay there, absolutely determined. And, you know, they, they said to me, we're, we're no longer frightened of the war. We've got used to that. We've got used to the missiles. We've got used to the air raid sirens. What really, really frightens them now is the coming cold. Harvey and Shelterbox's presence in Ukraine is costly, especially for a nonprofit, which is why she says donations are critical to their continued work. That's why we're launching our, our winter campaign now. Unfortunately, we can't do anything without money. And so we are very lucky to have very generous donors and supporters. And it's difficult economic times for everybody around the world right now. We understand that. But if anyone can give even a small amount, it all adds up and it can make a big difference. Shelterbox's website is shelterboxusa.org, where you can find information on their ongoing work and how to volunteer or donate. And for KCBX News, I'm Benjamin Perper. This is Issues and Ideas on KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. Father Ian is playing with food. This is KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. I'm Father Ian Dellinger, and I'm playing with food. Hard candy. It's just sugar, water, and flavors, right? Yes, it is, but it takes some technique to turn it into what you want. Okay, fair enough. But what if you want words inside your candy? It's pretty simple, apparently. You make your letters out of softened candy, wrap it in more candy, put it into the debigulator, let it cool, and cut it. That's what the guy at Sticky and Paso Robles told me. 
And just like Christina Aguilera describes, I'm Craig Montgomery, owner of Sticky in the United States, and I make lollies or uh, rock candy. We basically boil up sugar and water with glucose until it's cooked to a temperature of hard crack. We pour it out on our cooling table, and then we add the colors for whatever design we'll be making, separate our colors into sections, and from there we move over to a heated table where we sculpt the image or text in three dimensions, frame that all up in white candy, wrap it up in a colorful casing, and then we extrude it down to small little bite-sized bits and then hand cut everything. Okay, that sounds really simple. So let's go back to the sugar and water glucose. Candy has to be a little bit more complicated than that, right? Slightly, not a whole lot more complicated as long as you have a good thermometer and you cook it to the right temperature. What we do is more artistic rather than actual like baking or cooking. We boil sugar and we get really creative with what we can sculpt on the inside. So it's more of the process, not necessarily the cooking. Once the candy gets cooked up to the correct temperature, we add the flavoring. What does the glucose do? It's essentially a sugar doctor. Sugar wants to be in a crystal state. And once we introduce the glucose, which is basically a liquid sugar, it prohibits the candy from recrystallizing. And it allows us to actually make these shapes and have it be like a piece of candy rather than a crumbly piece of sugar. We do have to source our glucose because the United States is a corn-based country. You can buy high fructose corn syrup wherever you want. Good luck finding glucose. So we actually have to import that from France. So the kettle's starting to boil now. Yeah. Let so now that it's noise. boiling, we basically would add our doctor the glucose, which is just gonna sit in here and cook for the next 30 plus minutes. This is an 11 kilo batch, 22 pounds of sugar, plus another six plus pounds of glucose. And we're hopefully gonna pull out 22 plus pounds of this for a custom order. This is our last batch, hopefully, of 264 pounds that we need to make. Yeah, and that's just one design. There's two separate designs, both at 264 pounds, so it's a 500 pound order. You can see the temperature's probably starting to drop because the glucose was at room temperature where the pot of boiling sugar was just over 100 degrees Celsius, which is the boiling point. Picked up essentially a big stainless steel container filled with glucose and I just gently set it in the boiling water with my bare hands that have been washed. Glucose is very, it's essentially like honey. The colder it is, the harder it is to get out. The warmer it is, the more it'll pour out like liquid. Um, and by adding the whole container in there, I'm using the heat of the sugar to essentially melt out all of that because if we get the ratios wrong, it can make a batch too soft or turn hard too quickly. So we do have to have kind of our measurements somewhat precise, but we don't need to be like down to the ounce or the gram. And then now this essentially is starting to boil more. The glucose is running off of the edges of the pot. In a few minutes, I'll pick this up and let it kind of drain out into it so that we get all of that glucose out of the essential bowl and into our pot of cooking sugar. There's a coating around just from the sugar starting to doctor itself onto the bucket, but we'll try and get as much of that off as possible. Drop it in this bucket of water and water cleans up sugar really nice because it just dissolves. Question about the candy making process. You've got a temperature that you're boiling it to and that temperature is dictated by the ratio of sugar and water and heat, right? Mm -hmm. If the ratio was not what you wanted it to be, it wouldn't be the right temperature. But 
when you pour it out there onto this big stainless steel table, do fluctuations in temperature and humidity cause issues when you're trying to work with the candy? Humidity, yes. Temperature, a little bit. If it's really cold in the mornings, sometimes the candy will get cold faster than we want it to. We do have a little microwave in the back that we can heat it up when needed. But humidity is the major foe because humidity makes candy sticky. Once we extrude it and we're rolling it on the table, if it's super humid, it can start to stick to each other. And then it kind of makes not so beautiful candy. It'll make everything really shiny, but it won't last as long. So we've worked really hard to temperature control this building and we have dehumidifiers going to try and keep humidity below 50%. It'll be interesting if it rains this afternoon. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian watching sugar water boil, hoping to watch it be made into small pieces of candy with letters in the middle. We watch the pot of sugar water boil and come to temperature. Craig's brother joined him for the next part. They meticulously set the stage for me to video them pouring 22 pounds of hot sugar water onto the cooling table, and I pressed the wrong button on my phone camera. So we moved on to the next stage before it was too late. So here we have the beginning of rock candy, or what we call lollies, hot sugar. So for this we're going to make six letters, so I need to eyeball uh, essentially how much volume or space of this candy will be needed to sculpt the six letters without having too much waste. Because if I say this blue square got really, really big, and I only use this portion of it, I'd have to throw the rest of it away. And then we'd have less weight produced from candy. Uh, everything we do is by weight, not by piece, because it's hand cut. No two pieces are really alike. We pretty much make snowflakes every day. I didn't understand that at all. So, <laughs> because, <laughs> so you're mixing this color in just in a little corner of this big rectangle of hot sugar water. Exactly. And the color is to make the letters. We're going to have blue letters for this candy. We're going to have a green casing, which is the outside that goes around the candy. Okay. And then all of this amber candy, we're going to add the white to, and that's all going to be our negative space. Okay. Basically, there's a specific amount of volume of candy that you need for each element of the candy. So the casing essentially is one third of the candy. So this is going to be slightly less than one-third because there are pinstripes. And then six letters is about that much volume. I want to have a little bit extra in case I mess up a letter. You can't really erase candy. Mm -hmm. All the rest is kind of the negative space of the candy. And now he's cutting off the section that we need for the casing of the candy or the outside. So you can see where it's been on the table. It does have that crust. Where it hasn't, it still is liquid. And now we're going to be essentially mixing the hot and cool parts together and cooling it down until it's the consistency of everybody's favorite childhood toy, Play-Doh. So it is fun because we get to play with your food every day. We're gonna split this and both of us are gonna stretch. That way we both stay in shape and get our little workout in for the morning. We're satinizing the candy, so we're pulling the sugar into long strands, and we're introducing oxygen into the candy, which will make this portion of the candy crumbly and brittle. It's more of a unique mouthfeel and texture, as opposed to just your standard Jolly Rancher. 
you were to make a tube of our candy, you can actually breathe through the center of it because we have satinized the candy. Basically like beating an egg white. So you can see it's starting to kind of change color from that less attractive amber yellow to a more nice, vibrant, brilliant looking white. See almost like hair strands of sugar start to kind of form. Why didn't you pull the blue or the green? It would change the color of the blue or the green and also the consistency of the candy. It makes it kind of glossy as opposed to more matte finished. And then now we're working on a heated table which will keep our candy warm and malleable. This is the really hot portion of the job because you are standing over, it's a modified barbecue. So we've got heater coils on the inside. I think the surface of this table is about 140 degrees. You've got the blue, so you're going to make the letters. So this is the part I just genuinely don't understand. So I'm glad I'm here to watch you. It's okay. This happens a lot where people watch us and they still don't understand. All I'm doing is I'm making a three-dimensional S. So you have to think of an S on a piece of paper and then think about what it would be in three dimensions. Yes, but you're making it like one and a half millimeters tall. Well, we put it in the debigulator to make it small. We'll get there. Okay. So right now I have a rectangular block of blue. I'm adding a strip of white to the blue, which is going to be the negative space of the swoop of the S. Okay. And I'm going to add the bottom portion of the S. I can kind of see it. I can definitely see that's an S. And so then we stretch this down until it's about an inch cube by say maybe 14 inches in length. But it's still an inch tall and not a one and a half millimeters tall. Exactly. We haven't debigged it yet. Okay. We gotta make everything and then shrink it down. Okay. And the main thing with letters is getting the thickness of the candy consistent with each letter. Each letter obviously requires a different amount of volume. So you may see as I, as I make these, the heights of the blue section starts to change, but usually the width is always the same. Okay. And I'm actually using the tips of my fingers to gauge the thickness of this piece of candy so that all the letters do end up looking consistent. Okay. And he's adding more white to your S. Yeah, so I'm making the letters and Steven's actually turning the letters into a word. And if we were to just make an O and put it right next to the S, the O and the S would become touching, and so there would be no defining element in the candy to separate the two letters. Okay. So between each letter that we make, we need to have a thin piece of white candy, or we call them spacer, next to the colored bits of candy to separate that so that it actually does look like text. Okay. And so that's an O. Okay, that was pretty easy. That's it. Yeah, O is essentially, it's a pipe. Yep. The tube of blue with white in the middle. Tube of blue with white in the middle, yeah. All right, last S. So you've got the letters all put together. Yes. And now you're taking what's left over and making two big loaves of sugar. Yeah, so right now I'm making two domes to kind of sit on top of and below so that our text is centered inside of our round candy. Okay. So now we're gonna take our letters, begin to make everything round. Okay, this is still very large size. Yes. Oh yeah, 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 no, this is huge compared to what's in the package. Still waiting for this debigulator. Oh yeah, it lives under the table. Okay. Yeah. So you took that long green and white strip, two thick green, two thin white, you stretched it out and you cut it into three. Uh-huh. 
It's the easiest way to make six. Okay. Make two, cut it in thirds, a little bit of math. You're listening to KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian, watching hard candy with letters in the middle of it be made. This hard candy is sold at the size of a marble. This particular batch has a five-letter word in the middle of it, each letter about a millimeter tall. But right now, the letters are being put together with colored candy at about an inch and a half tall. If you're having trouble following the commentary because you think it's a more visual process, don't worry. I was standing right there watching the whole process, and I still didn't understand. I'm still waiting for this candy to go into the debigulator, and still very incredulous that what eventually becomes a tube of candy that is six inches in diameter will become bite-sized pieces with legible letters in the middle. Craig just made the last part of the candy, the coating, which is a blanket of green and white pinstriped candy that he rolls around the letters and spacers. Think rolling puff pastry around your filet mignon to make beef wellington, but the filet is an assemblage of three-dimensional letters and white candy spacing. And the three-dimensional letters with the white candy spacing kind of look like the cylinder of cinnamon rolls before you cut them. Look at that. Perfect fit. It's still It's still big. really, really big, yes. And I'm not going to make it small all at once. Okay. It is a process. So we're going to extrude or spin this candy down to its small little bite-sized piece because obviously this couldn't fit in your mouth. No. This is probably, what, six inches or more? In diameter. In diameter, yeah. There you go. Okay, are you ready? I'm going to make it small right now. And just like that, it is that bite size. Wow! So you just keep rolling it and pulling it until you're done. We're rolling it to keep it round because as you can see, it's still hot over there. So as it's sitting while I extrude out the portion that I want to make small, it's creating a flat spot on that candy. And we like round candy because lollies are round. I have to come back and kind of remake this round again because you can see that big massive flat spot. And then same reason that he rolls constantly all those pieces because they're still hot and if we just let them sit they'd all have a flat spot and or the text in the middle would start to fold and it just wouldn't look nice. How does the extruding not squish the letters? Like how does it keep its structural integrity? Sugar's cool like that. It's kind of very similar to glass, only a lot more edible, where what all we're doing is deconstructing and reconstructing one piece of sugar. And so everything wants to shrink proportionally. So sometimes when we're messing around, we can do like little mini, mini ones, like the tip of a pin, and you can still see the text. So we can make this as small or as large as we try and shoot for that dime, more like penny to nickel size. Because it's about mouthfeel. It's it's food. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You, and also, a lot. Some companies go really big. I figure if, if you want a piece of candy, you should be able to enjoy it and continue conversing with somebody relatively quickly, rather than for the next few minutes while you're eating it. And it just breaks right off. And it just breaks, yeah. With a little ting of a spatula. Yeah, he makes it look easier than it really is. It's almost like a, how you would crack a whip. 
So the extruding is done by hand. He is stroking and pulling the long, thick rope of candy like polishing a table leg, but horizontally. And as he pulls on the rope of candy, as he extrudes it, everything shrinks proportionally, including the inch and a half high letters, which then become one millimeter high, as a six inch diameter rope of candy became the diameter of a dime. That's the debigulator at work. And the ting sound that you hear is Steven cutting it into about 18 inch lengths by hitting it with a metal spatula before it eventually gets cut into bite-sized pieces. The rest of the process was to take the 18 inch sticks and cut them into bite-sized pieces. It's that same process. They each take three or four sticks in one hand and the spatula in the other and tap, tap, tap like you hear in the background. Once it's all cut, it gets bagged and shipped. Turning sugar into candy is all very simple, yet very complex. Chemistry, math, and physics are all required. Craig told me that candy making is learn by doing, and he's been doing it now for quite some time. Why did you choose Paso Robles and Tin City? Paso's my hometown, born and raised here, family still lives here. I was kind of always drawn to the artisanal aspect of what Tin City was and is. I fought like tooth and nail to get in here. It's really difficult because it's a very popular place for small businesses. And I was able to get this tiny back little corner that's very hidden and it kind of works perfectly with what I'm working to create, which is this unique experience. It's not necessarily just candy. I want it to be an experience for people to come in, watch the candy being made, get to know myself and my brother that make the candy and really feel passionate about what we do and kind of see that we're passionate about creating these fun little designs as well as delicious taste in candy. I think it's working because people are talking about it. So if you want to come in and watch candy, just make an appointment and we can have a pot ready to go. You can watch the whole process from start to finish. Yeah. It's been a ride. Originally, before I took this job, I was doing app development and I had a buddy say, hey, there's this job opportunity to manage a shop in Hollywood, but you have to go to Australia for six weeks to learn how to make candy. And I said, that sounds like a cool story. And that was 12 years ago. So, yeah. And I've gone from being an employee to now owning the United States. So it's been quite a journey and a fun ride. It was such a sweet time to be with these candy men. Who knew that there was such a thing as handmade artisanal candy? The next time you boil some sugar water, dare to dream big and make sure to get a debigulator. This is KCBX Public Radio for the Central Coast. I'm Father Ian and I'm playing with food. been listening to Issues and Ideas on KCBX Central Coast Public Radio. Gary Eister composed our theme music. A special thanks to all our guests and contributors this week. I'm Carol Tangeman. Join us each Monday from 1 to 2 in the afternoon for more local stories. You can head to our website to learn more about what you heard today or to listen to past segments, kcbx.org.